So it's yeah. That's C.S. Lewis uh, had said he, he's the first who first person that I know of that coined that phrase. He said uh, that Jesus was was either a liar, right. a lunatic, or the Lord. Right. And if a lunatic, someone that should be compared to someone who walks around saying, I am a poached egg. <laughs> because you don't make statements like Jesus made right. unless you well, unless you actually believe them and, and if you bring verifiable evidence that you are who you say you are like say you, you know, resurrect people or you heal people or uh, you speak in such a way as people are dumbfounded as to your understanding of the scripture or in fact if you are resurrected yourself. At that point, your claims to deity become Pretty demonstrable. Um, I wanted to say something that I skipped over earlier, um, just because I need some sleep. Um, I did. Uh, talk just a second about tactics. It's not in your booklet, but you'll find this in conversations. One of the you know, he mentioned, uh, Eric mentioned the. The passage it talks about that you're supposed to give a reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and reverence or gentleness and understanding. That's huge. And that's one of the things that apologetics does for you because it takes you out of this argument and puts you in a conversation. Right? You're dealing with your ideas and their ideas. Oh, thank you, sir. And you're trying to come to truth. Right? For instance, you know, the Oprah Winfrey religion or whatever that is or Hinduism Buddhism all of those have truth in them it doesn't make them true as a worldview but they have truth in them and so you can get together with people who think differently and talk about what is true and help sort of as Eric said chip away at their heart when they start seeing my gosh my worldview is falling apart here I don't see how I can possibly save this worldview well great because your worldview is unsalvageable and, and, and let me show you why and why the Christianity, the worldview of Christianity is uh, is authentic. In these conversations, I would encourage you to do a couple of things. First of all, ask yourself if the statement being posited is self-defeating. You hear, uh, true for you, but not for me. Well, is that statement true for you or true for me? Because if you say true for you, but not for me, what you're really saying is there is no truth, right? There's only your truth and my truth. So whose truth is that truth? Is that my truth or your truth? Because I think it's true for me and true for you. And you think it's true for you and true for me. Basically, we can't come to a, a, a position where we understand each other. If, uh, if someone says, uh, and this was an obvious one, somebody says truth is relative. Well, is that truth relative? Is that a relative truth? Because if that's a relative truth, it's not really true, right? It's sort of true, but sort of not true, so it's nothing. So you ask yourself if the, if the statement being made defeats itself. And people make statements like that all the time. And the good thing is, they know it's inconsistent. When you point it out, they go, oh, well, never really thought of it like that. Okay, they'll, they'll give up. Most people are intellectually honest if you prove to them that their viewpoint is wrong. Now you'll have those those people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins. Richard, not Richard Dawkins. That was a game show guy. Uh, Richard Dawson is a game show. Yeah, oh, okay, Richard Dawkins. Okay, um, and I've actually got him right here, idiot that I am. Richard Dawkins, 
noted British uh, biologists and zoologists. Um, those guys, um, you're not going to win them over with arguments because they've already made a decision, right? The arguments aren't the things that have caused them to cement themselves in that position. They know that they're guilty. They just don't want to deal with it. And you, I, I should have put quotes in there. There's tons of quotes of, of famous scientists and famous uh, atheists saying that very thing. Basically, we, we don't want it to be true, even if it is true. And I've had conversations with people that I've actually said, let me ask you, if I could prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christianity was true, would you believe it? And they said no. And at that point, I say, okay, well, why are we having this discussion? You're wasting my time. I'm wasting your time. Let's just, you know, go our merry way. There's no point in having that conversation. So you got to reason who you're talking to, and you got to think about the things that they're saying. So is what they're saying self-defeating? And the next thing I wanted to give you, ask yourself, be asking yourself when they're talking, how did they come to that conclusion, <coughs> right? Because people make statements all the time that are unfounded. One of the characteristic ones is uh, there are too many contradictions in the Bible. And if you say to them, show me one, most likely they don't have one. Now, he was dealing with an educator. I was talking about educators earlier, but I've asked that of a lot of people that are not educators, that hadn't spent a lot of time reading and studying, and they don't have a clue. They go, well, I, I don't know. That's just what I've always heard. Okay, well, so you're basing your entire worldview on something that you've always heard and never checked out. Does that make any sense? Well, no, I guess not. So anyway, just a few pointers that when you get into these conversations, think about what's being said. Is it self-defeating? And ask them. Ask them, how did you come to that conclusion? They say, well, you know, you don't have to posit a creator. The universe just created itself. How did you come to that conclusion? Oh, I heard it on the radio. All right, well, exactly. I heard it on Oprah Winfrey. Uh, God cannot be a jealous God. Therefore, God, that is not my God. Okay, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, because jealousy is a human emotion. You know, and then you go into, what does she mean by jealousy? What did God mean by jealousy? It's a whole different thing. When you start getting into these conversations, not only do you force them to think through these arguments, you learn to start thinking very logically about these things. And what you do is you're going on the road of truth together with another human being. And it cements you to that person in a good way. We had a conversation the other day. Uh, Eric was there with me, and we were talking to uh, a Hindu fella. He's a great guy. And, and his view of Hinduism is not what I've ever been taught in my life. Uh, it was radically similar to Christianity. I, I, my guess is it was very syncretistic. And as we were talking, I found it very intriguing. And at the end of it, we exchanged email addresses and phone numbers, and, and we're buds now. Right, because we took the time to explore these things together, and it doesn't have to be me beating him up or him beating me up. It's not my goal to convert the person anyway. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. It's my goal to point them to Him. Right. All right. Back on task. Uh, fine tuning of the universe on page eight, about halfway down. And guys, again, please ask questions. That's one thing. And another thing, if if I go too fast, I'm going to forget probably to tell you about these blanks and stuff like that. Just hold your hand up and ask me and, and I'll give you the answers here. Because what we want is for you to leave here with a resource that you can take home and go back over and go, okay, I'm starting to really get this now. So that you can be prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. There's a blank right there above. 
As you query for design, you should look for the locker lock. Is that what we're talking about? It is. All right. I don't. Oh, wait a second. Let me get my calculator. Now, on the locker lock, we're gonna. What we're talking about here is probabilities. When we're talking about. Uh, I just skipped right down here, didn't I? Let me go back to this. The the quote at the top: Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now this is what Richard Dawkins says, right? Now Richard Dawkins is not a dumb guy. He's a very smart guy. He's an Oxford professor. And his whole enterprise, what he does for a living, is study things that look like they're designed, but in his mind they're not designed. And he'll tell you why they're not designed? Because he didn't like the idea. It's philosophically unappealing. So it's not designed. Not based on facts, not based on truth. But he just doesn't like it. And so what he's done is he's come up with a lot of different ways that he thinks it might be able to happen. But you get, you get somebody like that in a position and you say, well, let me ask you this. And we're going to actually, uh, I, I'll hit this question in just a second. But you get somebody in a question like that and you say, let me ask this. Five seconds before the Big Bang, what was going on? <laughs> and they have no clue. None. Um, the teleological argument... And that's what this is about. It's a fancy word for design. Teleological comes from the Greek telos, which just means end or purpose, and so it's the logic of the purpose. The teleological argument is looking at the universe, there appears to be design or purpose to it. And what we're going to do is we're going to use that design to point back to a designer. Because if there's a design, there necessarily has to be a designer, correct? Um, as you query for design, you should look for, and you know, just make sure I don't give you the wrong thing. What I'm wanting you to say is you, you should look for probability. But let me see if that's actually. Okay, well, it's not in my notes that I see. So we're going to say it's probability. I've got the lock there. And there's 40 possible positions on the lock. Now, we're going to go into this a little bit. It, it's called combinatorials. It's the difference of if I have one chance in 40. So if I have 40 dimes in my pocket and one of them has a mark on it, the chances of me just reaching in there into my pocket and pulling the one out with a mark is one in 40. But we have 40 positions on this dial. And it's not one in 40. It becomes 1 in 40 times 1 in 40 times 1 in 40 times 1 in 40 all the way out to 40. Right? That's combinatorials. Hey, Don. And that's what you're going to see when you start looking at design. The, oh, I'm not going to do this because I'm not going to get at math. The possibilities become stupid. At some point, you've got to go, why are we believing this? Because it's, it's mathematically impossible. If you're trying to prove that there is no God, by looking at design, you're going to find that it's stupid. And again, we go back to the Romans 1 passage. Why do they do it? Because they don't want to surrender. With everything that's in them, they don't want to surrender. Um, okay, let's go back to the chair analogy for a second. If our chair universe right here was over there minding its own chair universe business, and it exploded. 
Does anybody out there think the result would be a living room? Be nice. I mean, is it possible that this would explode and result in a two-story house with a living room in it? Or a neighborhood, right? Now, why do we know that's not possible? What? Huh? There's, there, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Just, I mean, it's, it's not hard. Go ahead. Not enough parts. Not enough parts. Okay, that's good. That's a good one. We're going to hold on to that one. We're going to come back to that one because that's 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 part of this argument, actually. I'm what not else? a logical person, but that argument holds absolutely zero logic. But why? Why can this chair not explode into a suburb with people and homes and cars and living rooms and stuff like that? Because it can't produce anything. Because this can't produce anything? It didn't start out that way. Huh? It didn't start out a suburb or neighborhood. Well, what do we know if, if you took uh, if you took a car and you if you took let's say you took an old Ford truck, right, and you blew it up? What are the chances of it becoming, say, an auto mall? Probably not good, right? Right. And and, and I think what you have to recognize is the second law of thermodynamics. When something blows up, it gets worse, right? The second law of thermodynamics states something to the effect of everything is moving towards disorder and decay, right? So I'm getting older, and, and you know, that's why we have uh, the, the, the hair coloring stuff that just targets gray hair, right? And that's why we have weed killer. And, you know, that's, that's why we have spam and spam fighters, because everything is moving towards decay. And if you blow this up, it gets worse. If you have a universe, our universe is sitting here minding its own business, right? And we blow it up, is it going to get better or worse? It's going to get worse, right? Unless you have someone governing that, it's going to be an absolute mess. Now what they're saying, you talked about there's not enough parts. What they're saying is, at some time in the remote past, excuse me, I've got caffeine there, I'm going to have to grab. Thank you, there. That's my wife, Mandy, I'm going to give her a hand. <laughs> um, Red Bull gives you wings. <laughs> um, what they're saying is that at share? some... Huh? You're not going to share. No. No, not going to share. <laughs> Where were you at 5 o'clock in the morning? Um, at some time in the remote past, 15 billion years ago, there existed a point of singularity. And what that just means basically is, remember how... Uh, I said that if the universe is expanding and you roll back the cosmic clock, eventually you get to one singular point, right? That's what they're calling the point of singularity. And the reason they're doing it is, I mean, you think about it. You've got something the size of this chair, and you start to shrink it down, 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 and eventually you get to this little dot, right? But if I've got a dot that's one centimeter wide, or let's say one inch, because I don't know my metric system. You got, a, you got a dot that's one inch wide, I can always shrink it down to a half inch, right? I can always shrink a half inch down to a quarter inch. I can always shrink a quarter inch down to an eighth of an inch, and a sixteenth of an inch, and a thirty-second of an inch, and on and on and on, at infinitum, to, for, infinity, for infinity. Right, and so what they're saying is, what eventually was, when we roll the clock back, is a point of singularity. Now, they don't know what that means. But they, it's this, this hypothetical thing that exists in a black hole somewhere that they don't know where it is. You know, they don't know where it's at, but... Somewhere out there, there's a black hole, or there was a black hole that had a point of singularity in it. And in a point of singularity, you have inverse mass, so that you can fit all of the mass in the universe 
into a dot that has no size. That's what you have to believe to believe there's no creator. Right? That you either have, huh? Were you asking a question or were you just saying? No, no. Oh, okay. So you get to you get to a point where, okay, either there was a creator who started everything, or there was no creator. And if you have no creator, you have a dot that has no size that has all the mass of the universe in it. And it blew up one day, and out of that little dot that had no mass, all the things in the universe that have mass now exist. That's what you have to believe. That's so but that's where we are. If you want to deny the creator, science has gotten us to this point now where you have to be completely irrational to design a creator. Or to deny a creator, I mean. Um, so what we see is an assemblage of cosmic parts held together by a very delicate balance of laws, all of which make possible a function. That function being life on planet Earth. This functional achievement implies design. The design would be unthinkable without a creative agent to do the designing. And something had to get the universe started. Something had to control the placement of all these pieces. And something had to design and initiate the laws that hold the universe together. We talked about the second law of thermodynamics. We talked about how uh, this right here doesn't have all the parts necessary to create the universe. And we talked about how it always moves because of the second law of thermodynamics, or actually the second law of thermodynamics describes that this cannot ever move to something more complicated. It's always going to break down. Um, what I want to talk about, when I talked about combinatorials and how difficult that is, we're, we're about to get into the laws that govern the universe. Now, at count, there, uh, today, there are about 35 of them. I think I'm maybe getting ahead of myself here. So A was governed. It's governed by laws and forces called. You're talking about a number three on page eight? A. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm missing a page here or what? I'm looking for. Uh, those are foundational constants. That's the. Oh, here we go. I don't know what I did. I think I skipped a page. So, foundational constants are among the laws that govern the universe. There's approximately 35 of them. That's at last count. We're discovering them, right? But what these, oh, yeah. What was A? 3A. 3A? On page 8. On page 8 was, uh, you can just, just call them uh, fundamental constants or foundational constants, either one. And what they do is all of these laws work together to govern the universe. Things like gravity, things like the strong force of subatomic par particles that keep the atom... And by the way, we, we don't really know. I don't know if y'all know this or not. We don't really know what keeps the atom together. The Bible says that in him all things hold together, right? And a lot of people would say that it's Christ that holds these things together. But I will tell you that as, in science, we don't know. They spin around... And it's unintelligible to us. We don't know why it stays together. That's one of the forces without which life could not exist, without gravity. Without, and there's, as I said, 35 of them. We're going to go, remember I talked about uh, Albert Einstein positing this theoretical uh, cosmological constant. We're going to talk about that just briefly because there is, because of 
him naming it, they have actually come up with the force. They don't really totally understand it, but there is a force there that keeps the universe from collapsing back on itself. And it has to be precise. And you're going to see how precise in just a second. It's unbelievably precise. And if it weren't for all of these laws working together in unison, life would not exist. If you change one of them, just a little bit, the universe would not exist. We'd all implode. The entire universe would, right? And so what you have to believe is not only that this would blow up into a suburb, but also that in that suburb, gravity and um, atmospheric pressure and atoms and stuff like that also blew up into a functional thing. Right, that actually works, that performs a function, right? And what we're talking about is specified complexity. Specified complexity, this is number two. So as I said, I skipped a page and I'm going back. Specified complexity is complexity, um, but it illustrates a recognizable pattern not found in that particular medium. So, uh, if you looked at, you know what, right here. Now, this is a Bible, and in the Bible are pages that have paragraphs on them, that have sentences in the paragraphs and words in the sentences. And in the, in the words are letters, right? Now, if I took like a box of Scrabble letters, Right now, Scrabble letters obviously have been designed, but it'll get, it's a good analogy, right? If I took a box of Scrabble letters and I threw them on the ground, what are the chances that you would get? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What are the chances of that? You think none, right? Now, the Scrabble letters are themselves they're complex. You know, they they have shapes that are unusual and stuff like that. But when you put them together in a sentence that makes sense to someone who knows a language, that says something different, doesn't it? And so the way you can see that is think about if you're walking along the beach, sandy shore, and you're seeing, this is beautiful, I mean if you've seen it, the, the waves come up on the shore and they leave these little ripples like this down the beach, right? And it's very, it, it's very cool looking. And it kind of looks like it's designed. You know, you're, you're looking at that and going, well, there's a, there's a uniform pattern here. And it kind of looks like it's designed. So you're walking down the beach and you go a little farther. And then you see written on the sand, Mandy loves Ken. And a big heart with a little arrow through it. Now, do you think it's possible that the waves caused that last uh, little piece of writing on the beach. It's inexplainable, right? I mean, there's, you, if you look at that, you know someone had to write it because there's a pattern on that sand that cannot be explained by the water, right? The only known source of information is an informer. And what we see on the sand when it says Mandy loves Ken is information, right? And so specified complexity illustrates a recognizable pattern foreign to the medium. Mandy Loves Ken doesn't make any sense on the beach unless somebody put it there. Think about Mount Rushmore. 
Now you see, if you look at the side of a mountain, you'll see all kinds of weird shapes, rocks jutting out and some caving back in. Very complex structure with lots of different, you know, uh, angles on it, right? But when you look at Mount Rushmore, you see dead presidents. That's a pattern. You can recognize that pattern, right? These are people's faces, and what's more, I recognize those people because I've seen them on my dollars, right? So that's a pattern that doesn't belong there without someone having put it there, right? Okay, so when we're talking about the fine-tuning of the universe, you're going to see um, improbable things probabilities, right? And those probabilities are going to be in the form of a pattern. Um, if the 35 fundamental constants there uh, was changed even slightly, we covered that, then we'd all die. That's the answer to number to B. If one of these fundamental constants is, okay, I forget what that is. Hold on a second. Oh, okay. There we go. That's actually what I was talking about before. One of the fundamental constants is uh, the cosmological constant. Now, the cosmological constant is this idea of this of the force, and we don't know what it is yet, honestly. It's some some sort of uh, gravitational force that causes the universe to continue to expand, and it expands at a rate that is so precise. If it was changed, we'd all die. And the precision is one part in 100 million, billion, 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 billion. Now that's, I don't even know how to deal with that number, but that's how specific it is. And if it's changed, we all die. Right? The universe implodes. And what you have to do is you have to believe that not only that kind of specificity was an accident, but you also have to believe that that in conjunction with the exact right amount of gravity to allow that to work is also an accident. So it's not just um, one, the combinatorials thing, right? So it's not 1 times 40, it's 1 times 40 times 1 times 40. And then when you multiply that out to 35 different, and those are the only ones that we know of now, fundamental constants, you start to get some ridiculous numbers that people can't even fathom. And we're going to touch on them in just this next thing. The fine-tuning of the universe summary first. Oh no, we've already done that. Sorry, I skipped that page and it threw me all off. Um, okay, so we are... Yeah, we're there. Life, where does it come from? Hold on, hold on just a second. Sorry guys. Yeah, we already covered that though, but I'll give you the information. Second law of thermodynamics ensures that everything moves toward decay. If everything is moving toward decay, well, actually, put decay slash disorder, all right? If everything is moving from decay slash disorder, then everything is coming from order. So if it was at one time, if it is now moving towards disorder, and you roll back the cosmic clock, it was moving from a more ordered position. And keep rolling it back, a more ordered position, and a more ordered position until it's completely ordered, right? The question you gotta ask yourself was, well, who ordered it? 
I mean, if it's moving towards disorder and it's coming from order, well, who ordered it to begin with? Because things don't order themselves, right? This chair cannot put itself at the back of the room. I have to put it at the back of the room. These chairs don't just fall into place in this line right here like this. Somebody has to come in and set these chairs up in line. You can't have order without an orderer, just like you can't have information without an informer. Um, the fine-tuning in life. Doggone it. I just don't have it in there. Um, the most basic form of life is the cell. And what we're going to talk about here is the two types of evolution. Now, you typically hear about evolution being two types. You're talking about macro and micro. That's not what we're going to do here. Macro and micro exist both inside of biological evolution. We're going to talk about two different types. We're going to talk about uh, chemical evolution and biological evolution. And we're just going to keep biological evolution in one little uh, category by itself without splitting it up into two different kinds because of the amount of time it would take to go into all that. Not because there aren't great arguments against it, just because we don't have time to deal with them today. Um, in the 19th century, the cell was thought to be very simple. As a note, if life comes by way of evolution, then you came from a lower animal. And that lower animal came from a lower animal still. And that lower animal came from a single-celled organism, which came from uh, protein molecules that were formed by chemicals that came from elementary particles that appeared out of nowhere. If evolution's true, that's what you have to believe. In other words, life had to come from non-life. You had to have nothing, then you had to have elementary particles that turned into chemicals, that turned into amino acids, that turned into proteins, that turned into a cell. And then you have your first life, and that's a single-celled organism. Um, we've been considering the necessity of organization for the functionality of the heavenly bodies, and the same is true when we peer into the smallest bodies, the cell. They thought back in the time of Darwin that the cell was a simple globule of protoplasm, not much different from that which was thought to have been ubiquitously present uh, on the face of a young earth, which was Darwin's pond. It was thought that everything was just this blob of protoplasm and out of this protoplasm either UV radiation or lightning or something like that. Now we hadn't discussed where we get the UV radiation or where we get the lightning, but somehow these things were ignited and there was a chemical reaction and life just spontaneously formed out of this protoplasm. That's what, that's what they believed at the time of Darwin. Now, you gotta cut them a little bit of slack. They were using a light microscope and they couldn't see very deeply into the cell like we can today. What they saw was a couple of times, they saw a ribosome and they saw the nucleus and that's all they could see. Everything else just looked like a little glob. And so they thought it was really simple. Today we know that not be the case, to be the case. Darwin's theory never formally addressed the idea of how life got started. His theory was only interested in how life progressed once it began. And he says, and I've got that quote there at the bottom, I intentionally left the question of the origin of life uncanvassed, he said. 
as being altogether ultra-virus, which just means beyond the ability, in the present state of our knowledge. In other words, he says science, and he was right. By the way, I think Darwin, at least as a scientist, was a very credible, very uh, person of great integrity. He did, he did a lot of great work, and you got to give him credit for constantly being honest in his findings. Um, Darwin's theory addressed the idea of how life got started, true or false? False. All right. He said himself that science wasn't up to the task at the time. The study of the origin of life or chemical evolution starts with the cell, and then it works its way backwards. So, as I was talking to you before, you have elementary particles, and then you have chemicals, and you have amino acids, and all that. Well, what they do is they start with the cell, and then they try to figure out how the cell came to be. So, as a formal statement of theory, Darwin did not think science was yet capable of competently addressing the issue. He did offer an informal statement as to his own personal opinion of how it began. And I'm not going to bore you with that, but he's essentially saying that it happened just exactly the way I said. And that was the going theory up until fairly recently. Now, you got to figure, we, we didn't get the electron microscope until like the 50s. So we weren't, I mean, that's 100 years where we couldn't see into the cell. And during that 100 years, coincidentally, it was the same 100 years we were talking about where you had uh, all the, uh, the higher criticism attacking the Bible. And you had all the evidence seemed to be mounting against what Christians were told to believe, right? And so people would just throw their hands up in there and say, well, I just believe it because I have faith. Well, I'm telling you, if in this day and age, if you're living that way, then you're not loving the Lord with all your mind. Because we live in a day and age when all the facts are on our side. And as we began peering into the cell, the complexity of the cell brought the origin of life back to the forefront of inquiry. So, in addressing evolution, there are two distinct areas of study. Chemical evolution, which is the origin of life, and biological evolution, which is the evolution of all life from a common ancestor. The latter is what uh, Darwin was dealing with. The study of the origin of life, or chemical evolution, starts with a cell, as I said, and works its way backwards. In Darwin's quote above, uh, also referred to, uh, he also referred to the necessity of a first protein compound. I don't think I actually put that in there, but this was the quote that I was not going to tell you about. It just goes into it and it says there, there had to, in this little pond, there had to at some point have a protein. Just come to be out of nowhere. And the point is, your cell is almost exclusively protein. And it, it's full of protein machines inside the cell. Let me go make sure I'm not leaving stuff out okay, I just turned to page 10, but we're going to be a while getting to that quote. I'm going to give you a little math, and, and I'm going to be really quick. I'm not going to go over it. I don't want you to remember all the math because it would be really difficult to do. What I want you to do is realize how improbable this is. So, the bicycle lock or the lock that we looked at with 40 digits, if we just had 10 digits, right? And you know what a bicycle lock looks like. It's, you know, this inline lock with the 10. If you had 10, that's one in 10 billion combinations. When you take 10 dials and you use combinatorials, one times 10 times, one times 10 times, one times 10, you get one in 10 billion with only 10 possible slots for a number. Now, um, if you have, there are 20 different amino acids necessary for a protein. So if you have 20, not 10, 
You don't have, instead of 1 in 10 billion combinations, you don't have 20 billion combinations. You have 1 in 10 billion times 1 in 10 times 1 in 10 times 1 in 10 times 1 in 10. And so what I'm saying is in order to get 20 proteins, the types of proteins necessary to create, or amino acids, I'm sorry, the types of amino acids necessary to create a protein, you end up with a number that is one, the chances are one in one trillion times one in one times one in one trillion times 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 one trillion. It ends up being 10 to the 95th, 195th, I'm sorry. This is just to get 20 proteins that might or might not, or 20 amino acids that might or might not be the right amino acids to cause a protein to exist. And the reason that's so important is even in Darwin's planet, you got that first protein, right? You had to you had to get to one and what I say, 190 10 to 195th, that's 10 times 10 times 10 times 10, 195 times. That had to accidentally happen. But the incredible thing is, a cell doesn't have one protein in it. It has 400, and that's a simple cell. That's an amoeba. You have trillions of cells in your bodies. Many of them are far more complex than that. In order for that first single cell, that accident that's 10 to 195, 10 times 10, all the way out to 195 times, that has to happen 400 times accidentally. I don't have that much faith. If you start to look at the numbers, if you start to think about the chair needing to move itself, if you start to think about the chair needing to explode into a suburb, you start to go, why in the world are people believing this nonsense? Now, part of it is because we didn't have the information we had. Part of it is because people aren't looking into these questions. And part of it is they just don't want to surrender. The ones, I would just suggest that you know the evidence so you can go out there and talk to them about it because we don't know who are the ones that will not surrender and who are the ones that are right on the edge of surrendering and that's why they're fighting so hard. Um, the test tube, let's see, did I leave anything out here? Let's, oh, yeah, the test tube, here we are. Well, no, let me go to the quote at the top of the page. It's actually a quote from me. If you took, without going into all the math, because it's really hard for me to express this, if we took every single elementary particle, and this is a great thing to remember. I mean, if you can take some time to memorize something, this would be a great thing to remember. If you're ever talking to an astrophysicist and you're going, my gosh, this guy's got way more knowledge than me, and you hit him with this, he's done. And he knows it. What's more? He hits you with big words because he thinks he can get you. But if you just bring this up, he's done. If every single elementary particle in the entire universe and every single event and moment in the history of time since the beginning of the universe were dedicated solely to the proposition of creating the first protein, we still can't get there from here. But wait, we need 400 more. And the thing you need to remember is no serious scientist believes this anymore. They still teach it in college because they don't have another explanation for it. But the people are actually doing the work. The people are actually doing research. None of them believe this anymore. You can't get to life from non-life. It's not feasible. And to prove this, we're going to look at the test tube real quick. It says, uh, well, 
If there were some deep principle that drove organic systems towards living systems, the operation of that principle should be easily demonstrable in a test tube in half a morning. That's Sir Fred Hull, who was a brilliant astrophysicist himself. And he was also deeply involved in the idea of, of what caused the origin of life. He's also the guy who came up with Hull's fallacy, which is similar to what I was talking about. He said believing that life came from non-life is like having a tornado come through a junkyard and create a Boeing 747. Some of you may have seen Steve did an animation of that one time in, in uh, the sanctuary we watched that. And that's Hoyle's fallacy. This guy was a heavyweight, right? It, it, as an atheist, he was a heavyweight. But he's sitting here saying that if that's really true, then we ought to easily be able to reproduce that in a test tube. It should take no time at all. Half a morning, he says. If I were to take a healthy cell, and remember this, this is very important. They're saying that if you had all the right elements together in the perfect environment, right, Darwin's pond, everything's going great, life's going to happen naturally, right? If I were to take a healthy cell and gently place it in a sterile test tube filled with the perfect combination of water and saline at the perfect temperature to sustain and promote the life of that cell. And if I took a sterile needle and gently ruptured the outer membrane of that cell, with the result being that the components in the cell flowed forth into the solution of the test tube, the cell would not, no, the cell would not evolve. It can't. It's not going to become a more complex cell. It's not going to divide into two cells. The cell would die. The cell would die because life does not come from the parts. Life comes from the order. We're talking about design, right? We are made from dust. And by the way, that's not just the Bible saying it. Science has proven that almost everything that is is extremely simple in its makeup. It's dust. But it's not the chemicals. It's the order of the chemicals that make life. It becomes complex, and it becomes systematically complex, right? And when you see that kind of complexity, and it's specified like a language, you come to the point where you got to go, I don't think the waves created Mandy Loves Ken. It's just not feasible, right? And the odds are 100 and, what I say, 10 to 195 that you would even get a protein multiply that in a combinatorial fashion times 400, your odds are stupid. And as I said, if you devoted everything in the universe to creating that first protein, it's not possible. I didn't go through all the math, but I can promise you, I, it's, I'll give you this. I should have put this in the handout. There are 10 to the 80th, which is 10 times 10 times 10 all the way out to 80. There are 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the whole world. I, no, I'm sorry, in the whole universe, not in the whole world. In the whole universe, there are 10 to the 80th elementary particles. There are 10 to the 16th seconds from the Big Bang, if you assume, and that's if you assume the 15 billion years that, that uh, a lot of people posit. And there are 10 to 139th events since the Big Bang. Again, this is assuming the old Earth. There's not enough time, there's not enough particles to create the first protein which is 10 to 195. It's not enough time for the first protein, less long, that times 400, right? And that's why I say there's, it's just, you can't get there from here. 
So the simplest cell is a machine, far more advanced than any machine man has been able to create. And apart from us positing a creator, the cell exists without explanation. You got a question? No, I was just saying that was interesting. I never oh. thought about it like that. They had, uh, did y'all see, uh, is it, uh, no intelligence allowed? Uh, ben Stein? Expelled. Expelled. No intelligence allowed. Did y'all see that? Yes. They cornered Richard Dawkins and a couple of the others and were asking them, where did life come from? Richard Dawkins said, well, we don't, we don't know. We have no idea. Another guy said uh, they came, uh, it, it came spontaneously on the backs of crystals. Oh, yeah. Now, Ben Stein was awesome in his, you know, anybody, anybody voice. He's like, it came on the backs of crystals. It's like, yes. How'd that happen? Well, we don't know. I just said it's unexplained. So how do you know it came on the back of crystals? We don't know. So why do you think it came? I just told you we don't know. So in other words, it's just this idea. You pulled out of the air, right? Well, we think it came on the backs of crystals. Unicorns created the universe. That's what we think. And we're okay with that because we do not want to surrender to God. Um, no one expects you to remember these numbers, as I said. Uh, I, I just want you to be able to recognize the evidence is so heavily on your side. You have nothing to fear. And you don't need to be bullied by anybody, regardless of how many six-syllable words they can string together. They don't have the arguments. We do. All right. Let's see. We are... We are on page 11. If there is in existence digital information systems... Hold on a second. Oh, okay. Imagine you're an astronaut landing as the first man on planet Mars. Once you fully envelop yourself in a protective suit and release the seal on the outer door of your craft, you step onto the barren surface of the red planet and there before you is a supercomputer. A computer far more advanced than any man has yet devised. The computer is running on its own energy and is currently monitoring the movements and changes within the galaxy. What would you conclude? Somebody had to put it there. Somebody's been there, right? Somebody that at least has the intelligence of man, probably more, because they got there, one, before you, and they put a supercomputer more advanced than you, with information in it more advanced than what we have. And if we're looking into the cell, and we don't even at this point completely understand how it works, right? And it's full of machines that are far beyond our grasp. And they've been there all along. They arrived there before us, in one sense, right? We're not mentally capable of even figuring it out. What do we have to assume? Someone's been there, right? Okay, so the summary of chemical evolution. The simplest cell is a machine, far more advanced than any machine has been able I just read that. Um, apart from appositing a creator, the cell exists without explanation. Biological evolution. This is, instead of dealing with, um, and take heart, we're getting close to being done, 